If you would, turn to Revelation. We're going to read together chapter 1. Let's read together the first chapter. I will read the whole thing. It's only 20 verses. Uh, On the screen here. Oh, uh uh-oh. I don't know what I did. Brandon, can you bring that back up? There we go. Okay. On the screen are verses 3 and 19. Those are the ones that we will uh, sort of focus on. (laughs) So let's, uh, let's read together. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, 
and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning we come to you, and in this time that we have to dig into your word, to to read together, to study together, Father, I pray that you would speak. Lord, I ask that as we look at this book of Revelation, a book that is riddled with mystery, riddled with symbolism, God, I pray that through your spirit you would reveal your truth to us. Lord, I pray that the words that are spoken from this place here would be your words and not mine, and that you would speak to our hearts this morning. I thank you, Lord, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, Growing up, did many of you skip stones across a ponds or other bodies of water. That is exactly what we are going to do this morning with this book, Um, because I don't think we have any lunch planned or dinner planned or uh, here at the church, Um, and if we were to do the whole book, uh, it would probably take us all day. So we are going to skip like a stone across the surface of this book, and um, gosh, I hope that you get something out of this this morning. Um, our, our purpose and, and my goal for this morning is really to, to keep things simple. Uh, let me explain the, your sermon notes since they probably look a bit odd to you. Um, in putting this thing together, there was so much. I, I have, I will be honest with you, I have never toiled over and, and just fretted over a message like I did this one. Because there is so much that I could have put in and so much I wanted to put in, I just couldn't decide what should stay and what should go. So I figured I would let you make the decision for me and just give you a blank sheet. We're going to look at three areas this morning, um, the history, the hermeneutics, and the theology of this, and you decide what you want to write down in each of those sections. Um, Like I said, we're going to skip like a stone over this Uh, over this book and um, whatever you find helpful and whatever you find useful, I I encourage you to write it down. One of the things that I I want to do this morning is to give you uh, the tools and the resources to read this for yourself. Verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it. And so my my goal and purpose today in skipping over this book like a stone is to really give you the tools to go home and read this book for yourself. It's 22 chapters. It's it's not very long. I think if you're a decent reader, you may be able to do it in a half hour, or of course you can break it up over a few days. Um, But instead of just saying, hey, this is what it means, because, you know, there are many viewpoints 
And I certainly have my own, and I'm going to try not to uh, divulge that um, because, I, again, I want you to read this for yourself and for the Spirit to, to speak to you. Um, so uh, let's get into this. All right, the history. Number one, uh, the name Revelation comes from the first word that is in the text, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, we get this from the Greek word apocalypsis, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which means to reveal. Now, one of the things that I, I feel like I have to say, and don't feel bad if you have made this mistake, because I think everyone has, this is not the book of revelations. This is the book of revelation. One, singular. I'm pretty sure that whoever asked for this wrote on the you asked for it page, revelations, and that, I don't know about you, Pastor David, that's just a pet peeve of, of mine, I think, and other pastors. Because it, I, I think what it says there is that John saw all of these different visions, and then he wrote, he put them all into one book. And as we'll see a little bit later, this is one long vision that he saw. There are many parts to it. There are, there's so much symbolism that goes into it, but there really is just, it's just one. Jesus came and gave him one revelation, um, and as I said, it spans over 22 chapters, so it was quite a long thing, but it was just one. So apocalypsis means to reveal. We could say this is the revealing of, of Jesus Christ. It's not to conceal or to confuse, which I think we as the church uh, over the centuries have done a fantastic job of doing just that. We've layered this book in so much mystery and shrouded it in so much controversy that it has become confusing because there are so many viewpoints. Um, historically speaking, the early church, and I put there about 60 AD, um, just kind of give or take, um, till about the, the early to mid-1800s, the prevailing thought about this book, the prevailing... Um, viewpoint of this book was that it described the destruction of Jerusalem as a result of God's judgment of the Jewish people rejecting their Messiah. It was something that the early church had viewed had already taken place. Now, the exception to that is the very, very end of the book, chapters, I would say, 20, 21, and 22, do, they thought, point to a the future where we as where God brings everything to a close, brings human history to a close, and then the church uh, lives triumphantly uh, with God through all of eternity. But the prevailing thought for most of the book was that it describes the destruction of Jerusalem. This interpretation follows the pattern of other prophetic books in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, including the apocalyptic sections in, in Daniel 7 through 12, which God revealed to him to talk about the future empires that were about to come, uh, come forth, the uh, Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Since the early to mid-1800s, and I don't know as though we have a specific date as to when thoughts began to change on this book, but since then it seems like every decade we have a, a new interpretation comes to light, and again, another layer of mystery is put on it. It's kind of like 
Uh, those of you who lived during the 70s, you remember they said, uh, in 10 years there will be no more oil. And then in the 80s they said, acid rain is going to kill all of our crops. And then in the 90s, I remember this because I was alive in the 90s, I said, they said the ozone layer is going to burn all of us because there's a big hole in it. And then in the 2000s, it's, they said uh, there'll be no more ice caps in 10 years. They're all going to melt and the world's going to die in a giant flood. As we know, we still have oil. Acid rain did not uh, take out all of the crops. The ozone layer is actually thicker than it has ever been, and the ice caps, the same, are thicker than they have ever been. So if apocalypsis means to reveal, the revealing of Jesus Christ, this book should not be looked at as something with hidden messages or hidden meanings. Um, one of the things that, that we tend to do when it comes to the book of Revelation is what uh, Greg Bonson calls newspaper exegesis. In other words, we read the newspaper and we see all of the craziness that's going on and then we come to the book of Revelation and say, oh, there it is right there. The funny thing is, is that we wouldn't do that with any other book in the entirety of the Bible. What, need, what, what we should do is read what's in the book, and then when we see what's going on in the world, this informs us of that, not the other way around. And again, because of the mystery, we tend to lose our heads and do this. We don't read the newspaper and then say, oh, that's what's going on in the Bible, it's the other way around. God's Word when we read it and make it a part of our, our thoughts and, and we, we hide it in our heart, informs us about how we should perceive the world, how we should see what's going on in our world. So the purpose of Revelation is to reveal. Uh, and we see that in Revelation 1.1. Uh, he says, excuse me, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon Take place. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads, who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then in Revelation 1.19. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Okay, so getting into the hermeneutics of it, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our very, very fast uh, time that's going by. Um, so let, let's go through uh, each of these chapters here. Okay, so chapter one, uh, an introduction of purpose, writing what is, what is seen and sending it to the seven churches. Uh, the description is of a victorious Lord Jesus. In chapter, or excuse me, in verse five, he is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, Verse 14, eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 15, feet like bronze, a voice like uh, roar of many waters. Verse 16, right in his right hand he holds the seven stars. From his mouth comes a sword. His face is shining like the sun. All of this, the first century readers would have heard or read and thought, this is a victorious Lord. You have to understand that when John wrote this book to the churches, they were facing some of the heaviest persecution I think the church worldwide throughout history has ever experienced. 
you can imagine that they were discouraged. They were beaten down. And then John writes this book and tells them, Christ is victorious. Christ is over all of this. And even though things look bleak, and even though we are suffering, Jesus wins. And so we can take hope in that. Chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to specific churches, to the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Each letter mentions specific things about each of the churches and specific people within the churches. Most follow the pattern of there's an introduction and a description of Jesus that comes from the description in chapter 1. Then the Lord gives a commendation in most cases. I think there's one church that he doesn't really commend them about anything. Uh, Then there's a condemnation. He says, this is what you're doing wrong that you need to fix. Uh, There's a warning. There's an exhortation. And then at the end, there's always a promise. Each Each of the letters ends, to the one who conquers, I will. And then he lists some kind of of promise that happens. Chapter 4, chapters 4 through 22, this is the series of visions that John gave, or that John has, uh, as verse 4 says in chapter 4, in the Spirit. Uh, The visions are a continuous string that take place in the Spirit and in the heavenly realm with occasional rabbit trails Uh, to emphasize certain details, specifically chapters 12 and 13, uh, chapters 17. John relies heavily on Old Testament imagery in these chapters. And when I say heavily, I mean heavily. Uh, Of the 400 verses that are in Revelation, over 200 are references back to the Old Testament. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, and I know many of you have heard this. If John were writing this book as a college paper, he would have been cited for plagiarism over 200 times because of how much he references the Old Testament. And these verses, these references to the Old Testament, are all judgment language that is in the prophets of the Old Testament, specifically coming from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, there are a few from Jeremiah, but the main ones that John goes to are Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. I want to show you a graphic here. So on this wheel, which I don't know how well you can see that. On this wheel, these are all the books of the Bible. Now specifically, the ones that are orangish, Pastor David does the all right. Uh, these ones right here, this is all the New Testament. This one right here is the book of Revelation. Now you can kind of see how thick this line is. The, these, these lines represent all of the Old Testament ref, references that are in the book. Okay? So for as an example, you kind of see in the Gospels, there are a bunch that shoot out. Uh, here in the book of Acts, there are a bunch that shoot out. There are a few in the, in the epistles. Hebrews has a ton, but Revelation, look how thick that line is. 
I mean, they are just shooting out all over the place, and specifically a lot going to Isaiah, uh, Daniel, that, that one's pretty thick, Ezekiel towards the end. If we zoom in, can you all see that? It took me all of five minutes to make that really, really brought up, so I'm glad that the time I put in uh, worked. Anyway. <laughs> You can see how thick that is. Okay. That's just a, that is a representation of how much the Old Testament came into play when it comes to the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, when reading this book, many people overlook that or they don't know it or it just never crosses their mind. But that's how influential, specifically, the Old Testament judgment language, that's how influential it was in the book of Revelation. When you go through, uh, well, let me, let me give you some examples here. Between chapters 4 and 22, uh, in, in chapter 6, there's the four, what we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This, the description of these four persons or entities comes from judgment language that is in Zechariah chapter 6. If you go to Zechariah chapter 6 and read the chapter, you will find the white horse, the black horse, the red horse, and the pale slash dappled slash pale green horse, depending on what translation you are reading. In chapter 6 verse 8, the fourth horseman was given authority to kill with sword and with famine with pestilence and with wild beasts. This is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21. It has them listed right there. So John was not necessarily, this vision that he was given was not to bring about these new, uh, new images in their mind. Th those who would have heard this book in the first century or who would have read this book in the first century would have heard... Uh, what we know as chapter 6, there weren't chapters back then obviously, but they would have heard these four horsemen and their minds would have immediately went back to, oh, that's from the prophet Zechariah. And then they heard this fourth horseman was given authority to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, with wild beasts. Their mind immediately would have went back to, that's from the prophecy of Ezekiel. John was using the, those descriptors to describe the vision that he was seeing here. Another example, the three sets of judgments are descriptors of the ten plagues from Exodus, from the book of Exodus, from Joel chapter 2, from Jeremiah chapter 8 and 51, from Isaiah 13, 14, and 34. Whenever you read, there, there are several times during uh, these chapters where it says there were flash, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. That is classic Old Testament judgment language that comes from Daniel chapter 12 and Joel chapter 2 and, and a few other places, but those are the most prominent ones. So let's get into a little specifics here. Chapters 4 through 11 describe a heavenly worship scene with Christ and God the Father reigning absolutely. The Holy Spirit is there also, obviously. I don't know why I neglected to put that in there. 
but the, it describes a heavenly worship scene with Christ and God the Father reigning absolutely and unquestionably over all of human and earthly existence. It also has the description of the seal and trumpet judgments, which are incomplete. If you read through the seal judgments, I believe it's the seal judgments, it talks about how each time a judgment happens, it takes out a third of whatever the the description is. That is to indicate that it's not complete, that the judgment is not completely uh, happening. It's only partially happening, so it takes out a third. And also, uh, the, the trumpet judgments are reminiscent of Old Testament temple ceremonies. Chapters 12 through 15 are a description of Israel's history, culminating in Christ's resurrection. Uh, chapter 13 specifically is a description of the beasts. And this chapter is kind of interesting. Again, if we had time, I'd go through it. But l- let me ask you a question. Um, if I were to invite you on a trip to the Big Apple, where would we go? Tracy's Orchard. <laughs> hey, that's a great marketing scheme, I think, right there. No, where, where's the Big Apple? New York. Where's the Windy City? Chicago. Okay, if you get this, you're really good. Where's the Big Easy? New Orleans, very good, very good. I can't think of any others. Um, <laughs> but so we, each of these cities has a nickname, right? Easy to identify. Rome was known as the city of seven hills. That was its nickname. So when you read the description of seven beasts, or excuse me, when you read the description of the beasts, and it says this beast has seven heads and ten horns. It was a description that they, the first century believers would have immediately identified as Rome. For us, if this book said uh, the beast looked like a big apple, we would immediately know that sounds like New York City. Not a far stretch, by the way, just saying. So 12 through 15, it's a description of Israel's history culminating in Christ's resurrection, description of the beasts, the triumph of the Lamb and the saints, and then more heavenly worship with the temple in heaven being opened to bring about the final, complete judgment of God on the unbelieving and rebellious Jewish people. Uh, Chapter 16 talks about the bold judgments, and this is where it is complete and it is finished. There's no uh, this, the angel threw his bowl on the earth and only one-third or one-fourth or whatever the number is. It says the angel threw its bowl on the earth and the judgment was complete. It was final. Chapters 17 through 19 are a poetic and prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was known as the great city or the holy city. And in these chapters... John equates the great city with Babylon. Now, all through the Old Testament, Egypt, Sodom, Babylon, they were all a a symbolic description of when when a place was completely 
taken over by rebellion and evil. And John uses this image to describe Jerusalem. That because they have rejected their Messiah, they are now considered to be the equivalent of Babylon. In chapters 20 through 22, we see the ultimate victory of Jesus and his bride, the church. In fact, at the end of chapter 17, which we don't have time, I wanted to get into that one specifically, but we don't have time. Um, at the end of chapter 17, it talks about a, describes a prostitute riding the back of a beast. The beast is described as having uh, seven heads with ten horns, and the woman is described as wearing the colors of the priesthood. So this description is supposed to be the uh, partnership between the, uh, the prostitute who is equated to Jerusalem, the great city, and Rome in bringing about persecution to, to the church. Uh, at the end of chapter 17, it says that the, the beast turns on the woman and devours her flesh and burns her with fire. And immediately after that, so the description there is Jerusalem is finished. The destruction of Jerusalem is complete. And immediately after that, in the chapters preceding, is the bride of Christ comes down from heaven. And again, just chapters 20 through 22, describing the ultimate victory of Jesus and his bride. Okay, so a few things to note. Numbers play a huge part in this book. As you read it for yourself, you will see and read all kinds of numbers. Uh, Twelve or 12,000, as we see, denotes the people of God. Twelve was actually a complete number in the ancient world. We use 10, 20, 30. For them, 12 was a, considered a complete number. And so when you get into like chapter 7, where it talks about there are 12,000 from the tribe of Judah and 12,000 from all these other tribes, and they all add up to 144,000. 12 was a, the number of God's people, and so 12,000 would have been a great crowd times 12. 144,000 would have been a complete, a, a symbol of the completion of God's people. 12 by 12 makes a perfect square. They're, it's squared. Again, symbolizing uh, a completeness, a picture of, of a multitude of God's people. Uh, seven is a number of perfection and completion. There are seven churches, there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, seven bulls, etc., etc. Three and a half comes into play three and a half years, otherwise described as 42 months, 1,260 days, uh, as it's described in chapter 11. This is a broken seven. Three and a half is half of seven, so it's not complete. Uh, four is symbolic of the earth. There are four living creatures in chapter 4 um, as one example. And then three, God as the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's kind of the perfect number to describe the Lord. If you look in chapter 1, we actually read a few times where there were threes. Um, it describes God the Father as who, who was, who is, and who is to come. One, two, three. Jesus is the uh, the faithful witness, one, the uh, firstborn from among the dead, two, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, one, two, three. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You get the idea. 
Because the Old Testament references, though, uh, key terms and concepts must be interpreted correctly. There are many times in the Old Testament where sun, moon, stars were representative of uh, the nation of Israel. Joseph describes in his dream uh, that the sun, the moon, and the stars bowed down before him. And so that was symbolic of the nation of what would become the nation of Israel. Uh, earth and sea are also symbolic. Earth being uh, God's people, sea being the Gentiles, those who are outside. And then, of course, we, have, we talked about the beasts of chapter 13. Whew. Okay. Let's get into a little bit of theology here, and then I'll be done. At this point, I think I have either bored you to death or I have fascinated you beyond belief. I apologize for both. <laughs> but let me, let me say this to close our time. Those seven churches that would have gotten this book, this letter, in the first century would have recognized, and I think we should as well as we read this for ourselves, this book, with all of the craziness that's in it, calls for a present faithfulness and a perseverance for those who are believers in Jesus as Messiah and Savior. And it points to a future that is one of hope and one of victory. As I said earlier, the, the early church was heavily, heavily persecuted. I mean, I know there are many times when, when I have conversations with church people, and we talk about how crazy things have gotten in our country, and, and it's very discouraging. It is very discouraging. But I can't even imagine what we face here, multiply it by infinity, and that's what the, the first century Christians were facing, the level of persecution they were facing. They had to have been discouraged beyond belief. And John wrote this book that tells them, look, things are bad. But in the end, Jesus wins. In fact, right now, Jesus is reigning as king. And we need only to be faithful to him right where we are. Be faithful to him and persevere in whatever we are facing. Do not abandon the Messiah because he holds the ultimate victory. And my friends, in 2,000 years, that has not changed. Jesus reigns today as he did back then. And we need to be faithful where we are and persevere through whatever trials we happen to face. This letter would have given the early church great hope and great encouragement. This would have made them even more bold to share the gospel, even though they knew it could cost their lives. And so the worst thing that we could do with this book, when we read it, the worst thing we could do 
is to think we need to build bigger bomb shelters <laughs> because that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to drive us to build bigger kitchen tables to bring those into our homes, to engage those who need to hear the gospel of Jesus because he is victorious. Let me end with, with a few verses here. In chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 9. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My friends, did you hear that? Salvation belongs to our God. It is literally His property. It belongs to Him, and He has granted it to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Be encouraged, my friends. Christ holds the victory, and He has given us <laughs> He has given us the ministry of reconciliation that we would go out and proclaim Jesus lives, Jesus is victorious, and you have the opportunity to have life if you come to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Father, I think the biggest mystery that we have discussed today is how and why you have granted to us salvation and how and why you have given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we would be your ambassadors. But God, I thank you that you have given us this task. God, I pray for all of us that as we read this book, as we seek to understand it, that we would 
recognize that it is a book of hope and of victory and that you reign over all. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness, as those first century believers did, to turn our community upside down with the gospel. That we would share your love with those who need to hear it around our kitchen tables and in our workplaces and wherever else we we run into people. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.